You're listening to Diapod Logcast, the dialogue podcast. So before we get this episode started, I just want to apologize for my lack of foresight on the leveling of the volume between my voice and Michael's voice. Um, I'm extremely loud and he is extremely quiet, but neither of us are talking at the same time. We're more so giving our pieces separately. So if you turn the volume down for me um, and then turn it up for him, uh, I know that may be a little bit of an inconvenience, but it is a killer episode. I promise you, you will want to listen all the way through. Please give it a chance um, and just adjust the volumes as need be. I appreciate you all so much. All right, everybody, welcome to episode number nine, Diapod Logcast, the Dialogue Podcast. It has been a moment. I took a week off um, just because there was some things that didn't quite line up, but also I wanted to take a little bit of time to put some energy and some focus into some other activities, uh, including family and music. But on today's episode, I have a very old friend. It has been what I think you and I discussed close to, if not over, seven years since the last time we had spoke. Yep, that's correct. Absolutely. Um, so it, it's it's really great to have you on because uh, I know that there are some things and, you know, major things that you have been through um, in the past years that either shifted your uh, life, you know, the path that you were on entirely, or... Um, made you adjust in a different sort of way than most people would be used to. Um, and with that, uh, talking about uh, addiction and uh, substance dependency, I don't know much else other than that basic outline, but if you could explain to me a little bit about what you were going through during during that time period. Yeah, sure thing. So for anyone that doesn't know me, my name is Mike. Um, and I spent a long period of my life without using drugs and sort of my later teen years is when I started experimenting I started getting more into drugs and what I found was actually kind of surprising to me we are conditioned so much in our schooling so much in our policies about drugs and drug addiction here in the U.S. that we're led to believe almost that drugs always have this negative kind of stigma that's attached to them and I got the very unique opportunity to spend a good number of years with some individuals that had lived that kind of lifestyle and got out of it and also they kind of showed me the ropes of what I was doing and in my quest to understand more about addiction I actually found myself staring down the barrel of that gun if mm. you would mm. yeah that's an intense one um i mean the experimentation and such that you're speaking about when it came to substances i was right there alongside you for a not a very long portion obviously but a decent portion of it because um, that was sort of a time period in my life where i myself was doing a little bit of experimentation and trying to find out these different causal effects and outcomes through alteration of consciousness and um, to discover myself in a more intimate way by delving into my psyche. Um, And I've never done anything that I would have considered um, since I learned about drugs to be um, an extremely addictive substance. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that I haven't done addictive substances. I've tried cocaine. 
I've done MDMA multiple times. Um, accidentally did bath salts one time while trying to do MDMA. Um, I've been accidentally, uh, I've ac accidentally taken 2CI, a research chemical derivative serotonergic um, that I thought I was taking LSD. And so these different substances that I found myself in line with weren't something that I knew much about, let alone the experiences that I had on them made me not ever want to do them again. Um, now, not to say that I couldn't have fallen in line with the addiction and stuff like that with them, because it's very easy to do so. But at the same time, I, I never found those experiences to be something that I needed to relive. Um, but with with your experiences, uh, could you explain a little bit about the different substances that you have experienced and the ones that um, you sort of found yourself at arms with? Definitely. So. I set out kind of on a mission right after I had, you know, I started drinking alcohol in high school and smoking weed and kind of experimenting and saying, hey, you know, these drugs, they're not so bad. They're not what everyone talks them up to be, blah, blah, blah. And I went on. Uh, I've done MDMA multiple times, acid, mushrooms. Uh, I've done a whole host of psychedelics and they were never really the issue right to me, psychedelics you kind of you get that experience and psychedelics are the one drug i say they'll keep you in check if you try to abuse a psycho a psychedelic it will kick back on you absolutely it will try to show you the error of your ways there right and right that, that was always the beautiful thing for mm. me about them mm. But when you start getting into harder substances, you start getting into, you know, pain pills, uh, cocaine, methamphetamines, uh, heroin, mm. different things that I have had each my own experience with, they leave a resonance with you after you finish. Whereas what I have experienced, my DOC in the field, we refer to DOC as drug of choice. Mm. What I mean by drug of choice is a drug of choice is if you lay two things on a table in front of you, one of them being that drug and the second thing being literally anything else, you will take that drug. Right. So my DOC for about three years was methamphetamines. Mm. Now, the reason that was a DOC is because just because I tried all these drugs didn't mean I there's no you know sliding scale with going to see a dealer you get whatever's right. offered to you and that was one of the first drugs that was ever offered to me and initially i did not enjoy it i didn't like it but what i really enjoyed was the side effect of it where you got a lot done and mm. you did not sleep because to me that helped me it helped me with weight issues it helped me with productivity issues in my head and that was a justifiable factor for me to go out and do it again. And enough of that repeating cycle of, oh, I need to, I just need to get this done and I'm going to have to pull an all-nighter to do it. So I'll go get high and then I'll go and I'll do this. It's a very slow cycle because at any point during the cycle, you always have this feeling in you like, well, if I didn't do that, it wouldn't be a big deal. I would just quit. Right. And that's fair. The issue comes from addiction doesn't tell you when that cycle ends. 
when the hooks are finally deep enough for it to go, no, you're going to go do this because I want you to go do this. Mm. And it's that mental manipulation. It might be your own brain, but during that period of addiction, we often use the term hijacked because someone's brain is not within their own control. Mm. They do things that they know are bad for them, that they know have adverse consequences. They choose to do them anyways because in their head they feel like it is the logical choice. Right. That makes a lot of sense to me. I have had one experience that I know of with methamphetamine, and uh, when I took it, I initially thought that I was consuming MDMA. And... Um, exactly. It's, it's a very common thing to either be cut with or fully replaced with. Methamphetamine is much cheaper and much safer. I know, I know that that is uh, not something that I should necessarily say wholeheartedly, but it's safer to produce in the terms of the types of chemicals that are released during its synthesis. Uh, synthesis. Now, with MDMA, there is all kinds of horrible gases, as well as with methamphetamine, but with MDMA, you can become uh, severely poisoned from arsenic um, within like your first time of synthesizing it. Now, obviously, people who are just consuming it aren't uh, you know, worried about those synthesis gases, but the people who produce it are. And so MDMA, um, I do believe with street value, will run you roughly $5 to $10 for a point. And I'm not sure what the street price of methamphetamine would be for a point gram. Um, are, are you aware? Uh, of course, the price varies by economic flexibility of how much is available. Totally. As supply goes up and demand goes down, the price goes down. But from a range perspective, you can expect to pay around the same price. Okay. Five to ten dollars for a point until you hit a certain quantity of methamphetamines, usually around a half ounce, in which the price usually drops considerably because mm. once you get past the half ounce, ounce ounce part you're usually dealing directly with either the person cooking it or the person getting it from the person cooking it and it's not right. been saturated by too many hands absolutely in the economic drug world right um, for anybody who doesn't know much about uh, economics with drugs there is a there is a massive flow down um, it sort of looks like what I've been explained to it would sort of look like an hourglass where everything sort of starts off at the top very dispersed very diffused and then it sort of hits this peak area this center area where distribution starts to take place and then that again trickles down into a wider base of diffusion um, causing markups and inflation and things like that with the market, the saturation of the market, and then also um, the quantity uh, existing within the market. Um, but that's just very interesting to me, uh, the the relativities. But at the same time, um, if people can get their hands on meth, they more than likely can get their hands on other things as well. Um, but my personal experience with methamphetamine was one that I, the initial come up seemed very similar to that of MDMA, where there's this burst of dopamine and endorphins where you feel extremely elated uh, your vision becomes clearer your head seems a little bit lighter um, you have a, a lot of that euphoria that you're experiencing from the dopamine rush um, and then later on it turned into something completely different than what I was expecting um, being that I was on MDMA thinking that I was on MDMA where I started to feel sort of buzzy in a very unpleasant sort of way, 
um, and I started to feel sort of mechanical, um, like like a very adverse feeling of being mechanical, sort of the same way that I would experience um, like a later come down of a research chemical such as 25I or 2CI. Is that something that you uh, share in experience? Oh, I can, yeah, I can definitely attest for that, that mechanical feeling. I, I feel that I have often felt that in right. the three years that I was abusing methamphetamines, because especially more in the once you hit a certain point of addiction, it's not getting you high anymore. It's mm. just getting you back to your base. Right. But before that, I can remember several times that's part of what makes it addictive. While it feels uncomfortable, if you focus that concentration and that energy, you almost develop a kind of God complex. Oh, yeah. You're jacked. You feel like, oh, I can literally do anything. My right. ideas are better than... right oh wow yeah that's uh it's sort of like the way that you're describing it sounds like the limitless drug where your brain is activated on such a scale that your thought processes are sped up um your motivations are heightened and everything like that and so i could definitely understand where you're coming from with that um I don't think I took a large enough dose to experience any of the large, uh, the very impactful psychedelic effects of methamphetamine, but any amphetamine taken in a large enough dose can have a strangely psychedelic sort of space um, enveloped in that. It, did you ever find that it debilitated you in that sort of way, or was it just you able to focus all your energy to be able to be productive and um, you know, have these uh, grandiose thoughts and things? Oh, yeah. Most certainly, it debilitated me. Taking taking methamphetamine or really cocaine or any stimulant drug to a certain point will give you the worst version of tunnel vision mm. I can ever describe. And the issue with it is it can be good, that tunnel vision. And I'll give an example of that in just a second. But the tunnel vision could also be bad in the way that you end up scrolling through Facebook like most of us do when we're bored or have nothing else better to do and all of a sudden you hit this tunnel vision part there's nothing in this world that's going to get you out of that Facebook screen and you're going to scroll there for hours and you're not going to do anything it's going to debilitate you to the point where you don't think you can speak but there's the other version of tunnel vision um and what I primarily harnessed it for and why it became my drug of choice and why it became such an issue for me is I found that using a copious amount of this drug and then going into my job um, at the time, what my job was, was working uh, in a manufacturing facility and I was part of their screen making process. So all day I would run a machine that printed ink on these screens and then I would wash them out and I would bring them out to the production floor well I can remember one time in my head saying to my buddy who was also doing drugs hey I'm going to set a record today I'm going to do the most screens ever and I walked in it was a cluster there's a million things going on and I sat there and I was almost in slow motion thinking how I'm going to do this 
And I said, okay, I'm going to do it just like this. And I blinked. Next thing I know, 10 hours had went by. I had doubled the daily rate on what you could put out in that area. And that was fantastic. I got high remarks by all my bosses. I remembered none of it. Oh, my gosh. So with that, do you believe that it was sort of a blackout? Or was your brain just in this moment where it switched off the conscious activity and was built into like a overdrive of muscle memory? I believe it's, um, it's not a true blackout because if something substantial would have happened within that time, I would have remembered it. It's more like when you're driving on a long car ride mm. and you're listening to music and next thing you know, you've went 80 miles, but you don't really remember what happened over those 80 miles. Totally. It's because your, bra- your brain's just on autopilot. Right. And what my job was at that time was a very mindless production drone. I was, you know, working my way up that corporate ladder. And so at the time, that was my job. So my brain just went on autopilot. I had the good fortune that in the job I was working, especially on one of the off shifts, I didn't have to talk to anybody all day, usually. So there was no one to interrupt this kind of flow that my brain had went into, which is good because anytime I did have to talk to somebody during that time, I would stutter, I would stumble over my words, I would get really anxious, play with my hands. Right. And if anyone would have actually sat down and looked at me for too long, I feel like from my perspective, I would go, that boy's on drugs. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I could recall times even being high off of cannabis um, and having that sort of massive amount of paranoia where I'm thinking, I can't talk to anybody. I can't look at anybody. They will know he is high. He is on drugs. Um, and that is sort of scary. Now, the paranoia that is experienced with cannabis is obviously much different than the paranoia experienced with methamphetamine. Um would you be able to explain a little bit about that sort of side of paranoia and how it relates or, uh, you know, compares to other paranoias? Well, I think across the board, paranoia is heavily uh, influenced by your own psyche. Absolutely. Obviously, if you are a more anxious person, like I am, for example, mm. A cannabis paranoia and a meth paranoia may be similar in a lot of regards. The one thing they won't be similar on, and this more comes from societal pressures Mm. than it does from anything outside, is no matter where you live, legal or not legal, if you're smoking cannabis in this country, there's going to be a majority of people that will write that off and go, okay, whatever. Right. If you're smoking meth, nobody's writing that off for you. Right. Unless they are also smoking meth. Totally. Yeah. And the other issue, as I've heard a lot of speakers talk about, it, is that God, that uh, God complex that I talked about yes. with methamphetamine. It almost comes to the point where you're like trying to guard the secret. Like I'm doing all this stuff, and nobody can find out. It's because of this because that makes me a fraud. Mm. That makes me not as good as I'm trying to project myself to be. Interesting. Um, with that, do, do you find that the experience with that 
God complex that you're describing. Um, do you believe that still to this day that what you were doing, the amounts of things that you were achieving, the mindset that you had, do you still believe that um, people would view you as a fraud for the accomplishments that you were making, even though you were taking something to uh, improve your productivity? No, I wouldn't. And the reason I say I wouldn't is because, yes, that would make sense. But what meth did for me, and I will never advocate for its use because it is absolutely, I can tell you, it is a terrible drug. Right. It does a lot of horrible things to a lot of really, really good people. But what I do know is that in the job I was working at the time, and it kind of worked out like this, I was mentally not there for that job because I couldn't be. It was a very monotonous day in, day out. And you know me for personal experience, but for anyone else that doesn't know me that's listening to this, I'm a very thought-through person. Mm -hmm. I enjoy thinking about things. And this job, there was no thought. It was repetition. It was do the same shit for 10 hours a day, six days a week, and then go home. Right. And it got me through that part and actually, the one thing it did during my um, initial use, and I will say that it will not do that for me ever again because I became addicted to it and things change in your brain once that happens. Right. But during my initial use before addiction, it gave me control over my anxiety to the point where I could stand up for myself and I could say, hey, you know what? No, I have an idea and I think this would work. And actually that paved the way for me three, four years later to go and sit here and I run the manufacturing facility I started at now. Right. Well, that's phenomenal. So I know that you had mentioned that uh, meth is a terrible drug and to a certain extent... I definitely agree with you. I've never had a good experience. I've only had one uh, that I know of, but I've never had a good experience with methamphetamine. Um, Although, as you have explained, there are plenty of potential um, positives that can come out of its use without advocating for it. Um, But at the same time, I think what you had also touched on with it being a sort of societal structuring where we're conditioned to believe that drugs are bad, drugs are, are you know, wrong, um, that sort of thing. I think that there's a, a point in human evolution or even just the development of a single person where they can understand that there is no such thing as bad drugs. There's only bad times to use drugs, bad ways to use drugs, and bad people to use drugs with. Is that something that you could potentially get behind? Yeah, oh, most most definitely. Absolutely. I, I said, even in my career, I'm going to school to be a drug abuse counselor and right. eventually hoping to reach my master's and doctorate so that I can help further our study in drugs because the United States is one country that is way behind the curve yep. on how we study drugs because we are so strict in our policies. Mm. There, you are exactly right. There is no true bad drug. Even if you take a drug such as heroin, mm-hmm. heroin is just morphine on the streets. Right. That's that's all heroin is. But when grandma goes and gets her hip replaced, you don't call her an addict. 
because she had morphine to put the surgery. Right. That is an appropriate time to use that drug. Absolutely. Methamphetamine is the same deal. Methamphetamine is still Schedule two because it is, in rare cases, um, it's prescribed for extreme weight loss for when someone is too heavy to even go to the gym. It's prescribed for that. And it's also prescribed as a mood regulator when nothing else works absolutely because of the way it interacts in the brain however when you give it freely into the streets there's nothing from if methamphetamine's up on the tape a button on the table it's saying get me happy now mm. and you can hit that button as many times as either you want or you run out of money and try to get that same reaction and that's where addiction comes into play because what methamphetamine does in the brain is it releases a large amount of naturally occurring dopamine in your brain and there is so much of this dopamine and it's continually releasing it wears down the receptors in your brain that can receive those dopamine it hits them again and again and again, which gives you that prolonged high. Right. Because although your body is naturally pulling dopamine back out of the, the synapses of your brain, it's producing and releasing so much, your brain cannot remove it fast enough. And mm. that's what gives you the euphoric high. It's the same thing happens in cocaine. Mm. The same thing happens in heroin, but to a different, different extent, whereas heroin actually blocks you from taking dopamine back into your brain mm. and it keeps it in the synapse so the same dopamine molecules keep binding to the same receptors meth is different it's not the same molecules but it depletes that storage and that moves into one of the hardest things if anyone's struggling with a methamphetamine addiction out there and they feel like every time they quit, they're just depressed and nothing brings them joy anymore. That's how you're supposed to be feeling. And it sounds pessimistic to say, and it also sounds dumb to say it does get better, but it really does. The reason you're feeling like that is because your brain is out. It has no more dopamine left to give. Right. It has to work for a long time to restore that balance. Absolutely. Um, even for anybody who hasn't become addicted to any of these amphetamine or, uh, you know, uh, opiate substances, if you even take it one time, as is in my experience, same thing happens with MDMA. After you come down, there is such a depressing hangover, um, achy muscles, foggy brain, depression, um, lack of motivation and things, and that's because your brain is just empty. And uh, there, there's no more neurotransmitters to allow your brain to operate correctly. Um, and that's why if somebody has, let's say, a mental disorder or um, sort of an influx of neurotransmitters in their brain that doesn't allow them to operate at a specific level as other people, consuming methamphetamine will help regulate that in a, in a specific kind of way that will allow them to feel the correct feelings or, um, you know, set goals in the correct sort of way. Um, but with with that emptying, that dumping of all of that dopamine repeatedly, um, 
such as like let, let's just say when when K two and Spice were a major thing um, back in the late 2000s and early 20 teens, um, a lot of people who were on probation and were regularly consuming cannabis now found that they could not consume cannabis turned to these cannabinoid derivatives, these analogs and things. Um, and all of those research chemicals over long-term studies were shown to um, have completely depleted those centers in the brain, which caused the high, which caused the euphoria so extremely to the point that it actually altered the transmitters and the receptors themselves to the point where they are permanently confused where if somebody does consume cannabis or does consume um, another sort of substance it will never operate in their brain the same exact way um, and that's sort of scary because there are a lot of things that we can experience responsibly and actively with positive intention that can bring us enormous amounts of um, you know, relative happiness and enlightenment and sort of a overall feeling of gratitude and, and genuine elation with being alive and, and that sort of acceptance of it. Um, but uh, if, if that is something that you had experienced, could, could you explain to me and to the listeners a specific instance or several instances where you found yourself in that deep hole where you, you really could not get out of that depression cycle? Definitely. I was towards the end of my addiction, so I was still using. Um, actually, the preface for it is in July of 2016, I was arrested. Okay. And what had happened is I actually had gone to bed early that morning. I woke up the next day and there were cops swarming my house. Turns out they were looking for someone else, but turns out their luck had happened that the wrong ha or the wrong person they went after turned out to be the right person because I had a lot of drugs on me. Damn. So I spent three days in jail because it was over the weekend they of course came into my house on a friday and then court doesn't open till monday so i had to spend three days there i bailed myself out on monday and i had the full intention that i was going to stop i was like yep i'm done you know i have to get my life together you know people at work know about this my picture was you know up on the minnesota you know judicial website mm. blah 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 and i went home and the first thing i did was use wow and that was the most crushing thing to me i was at the time i was happy but on the inside the inner part of me that was screaming to come out was so disappointed in myself Mm. And he was so upset with myself. And actually, what had made me stop was the the reason I could always justify my addiction was that there was nobody in my close group of family and friends that was judging me. There was no one saying, no, that's enough. You can't do that. And it allowed me to kind of do whatever I felt was right. I then got a new girlfriend at that time. And she used nothing so every time that I came home high I had to sit there and pretend like I wasn't mm. and that 
crushed me more than anything because it is the most uncomfortable thing in the world to be high and then sit there and look at someone you love and tell them you're not and try to pretend that you're not Mm. and so I did quit but the depression it spiraled me into I I can remember certain days waking up and wishing that I would have rather died the night before than have to wake up and try to do this again Mm. because I mean everything from sex to to even smoking weed which I still allowed myself to do because I will say that getting clean off any hard drug is difficult and if you can smoke weed it and you can do it responsibly enough to the point where you don't become a total burnout and not do anything it does help you to help get some of that feelings but nothing seemed to be helping me mm. I mean even sex one of the most euphoric experiences a human can have without drugs I felt nothing there was mm. nothing there for me my brain had no stores left to give and it was actually a lot of credit to um, my counselors when I went to drug and alcohol counseling Um, I had one counselor named Steve and he told me the most inspiring thing that I could have ever gotten and it was actually that that little lesson that got me really through that hump and it sounds weird because it's really not that hard of a statement but I never thought about it in such a way and he asked me, he looked at me, he said, Mike, listen, let me tell you, what would you do if you weren't going through this treatment program and you had two buddies hit you up? One buddy lived in your hometown and he had some all right meth. And one buddy lived two hours away and he had fire. He had some of the best. Which buddy are you going to? You're going to the buddy that's two hours away, aren't you? (laughs) Right? Because you're willing to put in the work to get what you want. Sobriety and getting clean from drugs is the exact same story. The only difference is what you want is to not die. Right. That's intense. Um, Man, that's, uh, that's something that I think is overall universal when it comes to making positive change, um, regardless of what that change is. Let's say you're changing up your diet, or you're getting clean from hard substances, or you're making a resolve to adjust your physical activity levels, whatever. There needs to be an active and honest conversation that you have with yourself where you recognize your faults, You stop lying to yourself about your reasoning and your justifications and you just make the change because you know that it needs to take place. And for anybody who thinks that uh, a positive change like that is going to happen overnight, they're going to be sorely disappointed. Um, And I'm sure that you've experienced something similar to that. Did you only relapse, you know, one time after you had gotten out of jail or was it a long and, and, uh, you know, arduous road that you had to go down? Oh, God, no. Uh, in, in studying, I will say relapse is part of the recovery process. Mm. And it's a part we don't like to mention because it's the last thing we want to happen to someone in recovery. Right. But it is a definite part. 
because it's almost a reminder of why you left it. And let me give you the explanations. I got busted in July. I didn't go to treatment in December. So that whole period of time I was using Mm. and feeling worse and worse and worse about myself. Right. I went to treatment. I really took a lot out of that treatment because with any program, you get out of it what you put into it. If you go into it thinking, I don't need this, this ain't shit, they're not going to help me. You're right. They're not because you're not open to their help. Absolutely. They're going to try. They're going to do their damn best, but they're not going to help you. Right. I got a I got a treatment. I did a lot better. And actually, I stayed sober for about two years, and I had a relapse. This relapse lasted about one week, and in that one week, I spent up my savings. Mm. I hated myself and I hated the person I was with and that's and I say that as a terrible thing because the person I'm with right now is an amazing person and I love her so much Mm. but in that time period I lost myself and when I came out of that relapse I realized that A I don't want to ever do this again not because it wasn't my drug of choice not that it isn't still my drug of choice now because no matter how much the little part of my brain that says, oh, you want that because that feels really good, the person I the person I am doesn't like that person. Right. And if it's going to make me feel worse about myself, what's the point of it? Absolutely. So there's a lot of, would you say, projection that takes place during the um, rehabilitation portion of addiction where you sort of put into perspective a different sort of blame on others for the way that you treat yourself and them or is it more so a blame of the self for you inactively or reactionarily uh taking it out on the people that you love i think it's a little bit of both i think it really depends on who you are as a person we definitely see both when we're dealing with addiction we see the people that are like i have no problem and it's their fault Mm. that i'm going to do this if 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 i just hadn't lost my job if i just you know if i just had somewhere to stay tonight if i if my girlfriend wouldn't have left me you know, they create all these excuses and they say, well, it's their fault that I'm using right now. Mm. And then you have almost the even sadder facet of it when it's someone that readily admits that it's their problem, but they feel like they are so low that they can't ever escape it. Mm. And we see, we see both of them heavily in drug treatment and they're both solved the same way. It's solved with a lot of forgiveness and it's a lot of self-care and self-motivation and self-love because truly drug addiction could almost be replaced with the words of connection Mm. humans are bonding creatures so if i can't bond with my friends and my spouse and whoever else is around me i'm gonna i'm gonna you know bind myself with what's there and if what's there is drugs I'm going to repeatedly do so to create that connection, to fill that void that I feel in my heart. 
Mm. And in reality, the most successful drug treatment programs are the ones that help you build healthy bonds and connections with other people so that you don't readily have to seek out that drug just to feel valued and just to feel wanted. Absolutely. So that sort of comes down to a perspective of self-esteem versus a self-destructive personality. Um, and these different things that we do to either harm ourselves actively because we feel low about ourselves or we do so, do these negative things because we know the negative consequences and the negative consequences are what we want um, because of that perception of self. Um, it, it seems very, uh, it just seems very strange because I've never experienced anything quite like that. Um, other than maybe the use of alcohol and things like that. Um, but at the same time, I, I feel like that sort of addiction can relate to those feelings um, of, of feeling like you're letting the people that you love down, you're letting yourself down, uh, you're wasting money, um, you are unproductive, and you're sort of going down this path that you can see very readily what the end game is, what the end of the road is going to be for you, but regardless of knowing that negative outcome, you still participate in it because you need that void to be filled. Um, and that, for me, for myself, with alcohol, was sort of this area where I wanted to avoid myself in a sort of sort, sort of kind of way, where I knew negative aspects of myself, and I knew that if I could numb those portions of my brain and or my body, then I wouldn't have to deal with them for now. Um, but then when you do get sober, uh, it's eventually just the same exact outcome. There's no change has been made and it's, it's all just been um, sort of fruitless. And uh, you bring yourself to this point where you wish that, like you were saying, you wish that you were dead and you have this grandiose depression and, and things like that. Um, so, so with you working towards drug rehabilitation counseling. What exactly is that pertaining to? Um, you know, is there a specific area of study that you're doing? Um, or, or what are like the outlines there? My general outline right now is I'm just going for my LADC, which is licensed alcohol and drug counseling. Mm. And then I hope to expand outside of that. I find that in a lot of, and it's getting better, every year it gets better, but a lot of our older forms of drug and alcohol treatment, they just simply do not work. Mm. The success rate is terrible because of the complex nature of addiction. My ideal goal would be, it's a two-facet goal, is to A, get my master's, which would allow me the freedom I need to start my own drug rehabilitation center, and then two, to get my doctorate, which would allow me to do my own and publish my own research on drugs and their mm. effects, because I think that a lot of key aspects are missing from our drug policy in the U.S., and Obviously, the most common of those is the societal um, rejection of drug abusers. There's a stigma I talked about a little earlier, the stigma of you are a drug user, 
so you're inherently bad. Mm. I have known plenty of drug users and plenty that are still drug users today that I would not call bad people. Yep. They're great people. They're they're wonderful friends. They might be a wonderful husband or father, but they have something going on inside them that is their own issue. Mm-hmm. And to treat them, the first step of that I talked about connection. And the first step of that is to help crush down that stigma and open up more knowledge because stigma is the absence of knowledge. Stigma is assumptions and judgments based on the information available, whereas knowledge breeds understanding, it breeds forgiveness, and most importantly, it breeds love. Right. And that's what we really need to help this drug problem in America. And I hope to show that in my work. There's already been tons of researchers that have showed that, and I want to count myself among the ranks to show, hey, if you want people to get better, you have got to focus less on punishing addicts for having a mental illness and encouraging them to seek the help they need, reintegrating them into society, and stop putting barriers every step along the way, preventing them from getting back into society. Because if you really think about it, if you get popped with an eight ball of heroin, you're going to jail, probably losing your job. You are probably going to lose your place of residence if you rent. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you're going to have a felony on your record, which is going to bar you from getting any of the other two. You're not going to be able to find another job, and it's going to be extremely difficult to find a place to rent. Chances are the only places you can rent are in bad parts of neighborhoods where drugs are readily present. And how easy is that going to be for you to quit? Right. So it's it sort of brings down to this point of uh, segregation because of the use um, and the abuse of the drugs. Um, so with that, speaking on the aspects of all of the negative outcomes from the law that can occur because of the use of drugs, um, are your thoughts uh, following in line with thinking that potentially the legalization or and or decriminalization of these substances is going to play as one of the key factors in mitigating and um, you know stifling the long chain of events that happen due to uh, addiction. I think that with most drugs, I think you're definitely right. I think decriminalization is the route to go. With legalization, you encounter a lot of things. Legalization has benefit for certain drugs like, I would say, most psychedelics and marijuana. Legalization is the definite route to go because those drugs can be used responsibly and they have great medical potential. When you get into harder drugs, your methamphetamines and your heroin and your cocaine, legalization is possible. But you run the risk of running into the same thing we run into with alcohol today and age. Alcohol is legal, but we have tons of people addicted to it. Absolutely. Decriminalization, if you, I don't know if you've um, stayed up to date in the news with Portugal. Absolutely. Portugal has had an incredible result with the decriminalization of drugs because it took the money it spent on fighting 
against people using drugs and put that money into rehabilitation programs. Absolutely. And almost nobody would want to go back to the old system. Right. And then uh, also falling in line with that, if you do decriminalize it, then inherently, not immediately, but over a period of time, you're taking away that sort of power that is held through the black market of uh, it being illegal. Um, would you say that that would also be an outcome that could take place, uh, you know, stripping the money away from the black market and the uh, cartels that deliver these drugs? Oh, I mean, definitely. We will sit here and debate all day where our tax money should go. Right. Should our tax money go to education? Should it go to military? Should it go to Social Security? But we never think about this large percentage of Americans that are spending hundreds of thousands, probably millions of dollars each year to the cartels for drugs. Right. Why don't we keep that money in-house? We have all of the supplies necessary to create any drug we want in-house. The only reason I say not legalization is because it would be very hard to be an addict and wake up every single day with a billboard that says, have you tried doing meth today? <laughs> right, right. And we already have to teach many alcoholics this because that is a very hard thing with alcohol. Unlike, unless you live in a legal state where marijuana is legal, most other drugs, you don't have to drive by the shop where you can go and buy drugs and no one's going to look at you weird. With alcohol, we have to deal with that all the time, and it's one thing that alcoholics struggle with quite a lot, and that's why we take alcohol and we put it in a different category as all other drugs because alcoholics have to deal with the fact that it is socially acceptable and you pass a million liquor billboards and liquor shops on your way to anything. Mm. And that's the only reason I say legalization might not be, at this time, our best option, is because if we had it readily available, it would make it harder for people that are already trying to recover. Totally. However, 20 years down the line, things change. That might be our best option. Right. Um, due to different factors that come into play with, uh, like you were talking about, a larger percentage of education um, and understanding with these different drugs, different research trials that can take place. Um, and I could definitely foresee a majority, if not all drugs, sometime in the future, I'm not just an indiscriminate amount of time in the future being legal, um, and then maybe not necessarily there being a corporate regulation of these products, but more so them just saying, if you do do this, there is no other repercussion to you other than the repercussion of the self and the experiences that you're going through. Now, that is a little bit um, on the spectrum of, you know, insensitive, which is definitely one of the main things that I would feel bad about if it was uh, legal. Um, and that, for that reason, I think that we're not quite ready, we're not quite there, but sometime in the future with enough education and enough studies done on these different substances, we can probably and more than likely educate ourselves to the point where addiction may be mitigated entirely because we understand the negative long-term outcomes, not just these propagandist things that are pushed onto us by government um, and by different uh, administrations and things like that so that we don't feel 
um, all of the negative feelings that we feel towards drugs, but also we understand that there are negatives to these drugs. And it is a little bit convoluted, um, but at the same time, I think that there's a overall positive change that can come from that. Um, and, and with that, you were speaking on psychedelics and cannabis legalization, thinking that that is probably already the route that we should be going down. And I definitely agree with you on that one. Um, my personal experiences with psychedelics and cannabis has been that uh, when it comes to psychedelics, I don't really want to do them again for some time after having a very intense experience. And normally I go into it setting an intention of positivity for self-change and growth, um, as well as trying to get different messages uh, across with myself that maybe potentially I'm lying to myself about or I'm lying to a loved one about or something like that. Um, and same thing with cannabis. That's more so just my DOC. That is what I go to because it, I, I find joy in it. Um, you know, physically, I enjoy smoking and consuming cannabis, um, but also it regulates the way that I think, um, the processes that I go through. It allows for better creativity. Same thing with psychedelics. Um, and uh, it, it just brings me to a place where I don't feel bad about myself for doing it. Um, but in that regard, it's also widely, much more widely accepted by society these days. Now, there are still people who will feel negative feelings of paranoia and guilt from doing and consuming cannabis, which is understandable because of the stigmas that still exist around it. Um, but it's not nearly the sort of stigma that was probably experienced back in, say, the 70s, um, where literally ganj was the devil, you know. Um, but uh, moving on to uh, another topic here that I, I really wanted to get into with you uh, is the um, treatment of addiction with other substances. Now, like psychedelics per se, um, there have been studies shown where people can use MDMA um, to either overcome you know, an addiction that they're experiencing or a mental illness that they're experiencing, such as PTSD, similar with psilocybin treatments for uh, ridding people of their addiction to nicotine, um, and then as well as uh, treatments with a chemical called ibogaine. Are you familiar with ibogaine? Oh, yes, I have read many studies on ibogaine. Absolutely. Um, and with that being something that could absolutely cure, if not treat people for their addictions, um, could, could you explain a little bit about what you know regarding these different trials and studies? Well, there have been, I mean, countless trials. You talk about, we have magic mushrooms, MDMA, and of course you mentioned Ibogaine. These are all fantastic substances. Um, with the exception of MDMA, they are naturally occurring substances. Right. MDMA is naturally occurring, but in order to get enough of MDMA you do need to go through a synthesization process um, each one of them kind of treats their own issue with Ibogaine Ibogaine is absolutely fantastic at the treatment of many types of addiction but what's mostly been studied is uh, addiction to opiates mm. to the different types of opioids we have not had the chance to actually study its effects on wide-ranging addiction but from what i've heard of ibogaine it is a very profound psychedelic trip 
and it actually has the ability the reason is so great for i i mentioned opiate but it would also be alcohol because alcohol and opiates are actually one and the same and how they affect the receptors of the brain okay and also how the receptors react to the lack of that substance probably more important so but what they do in the brain that we don't understand is they seem to reverse the effect of the addiction whereas someone can go in a crippled heroin addict and go through a shamanistic ceremony which is the only way you're really going to get to experience game, is down usually in peru or one of i think there's three or four the last i checked of uh, what do you want to call it shamanistic ceremonies that yep. take place within the u.s they're actually legalized churches where they where native americans have fought for their right to have this substance such as like uh, santa daima with ayahuasca yes yes um and with i it's funny you mentioned ayahuasca ayahuasca i've heard referred to as mother earth yeah I've heard Ibogaine referred to as Father Earth. Mm. I, Ibogaine, as it's been referred to, is not a pleasant trip. Nope. It is profound, and it is um, a very beautiful trip, but is Ibogaine don't hold your hand this <laughs> trip. Right. It's going to throw you to the ground, and it's going to tell you the way it is. Yep. It's going gonna, it's gonna to possibly you know, send messages to you and make you feel things you don't want to feel and you don't feel like you're ready to feel. Absolutely. But by the end of it, the amount of results reported of people, all of a sudden they don't smoke cigarettes, they don't need to drink, they don't they don't have the feeling in their brain that told them you need to do this is gone. Right. That's the feeling drug addiction fights against all time. Mm. It's, we can get through the physical aspect. We have more than enough medical capabilities to get through any physical withdrawals. It's the mental aspect. And that little voice saying you should do this all of a sudden is pretty silent after an Ibogaine treatment. Mm. Definitely. I've, uh, I've never had an experience with Ibogaine, but I have been offered Iboga, which is, I do believe, the plant the root that ibogaine is extracted or synthesized from um i had been offered it and literally at that point in time i told myself that i would not be ready for the experience that was coming and looking back on it i'm glad that i didn't take that route but at the same time a little bit um, regretful because i know that it could have had massive and immense positive change for myself um it's just that lack of openness of heart to be able to take in that change you know that that we were talking about where you need to be open and ready to the experiences of the change in order for it to have an active effect on you and definitely and i I feel like you were in the right in that because i feel like any psychedelic i i have always told people and any times i've done psychedelics and i've done quite a lot of them right because i i enjoy them Mm mm-hmm quite a bit and they've taught me so much about myself and the world around me but if someone's hesitant i used to be the person that would like try to talk them into right not so much peer pressure but try to you know calm their anxieties and say well you know it doesn't do this and yada yada i'm at the point now if you're not ready for it i both respect that 
not both think you don't you shouldn't do it because psychedelics should be something that you step in with both feet in the water absolutely should go into a psychedelic experience prepared to deal with anything the good and the bad yep absolutely dude um so you're saying stepping your feet into the water um something with ibogaine something like ibogaine i definitely believe that that holds true where you would definitely need to be fully prepared as much as a a human being can be prepared for a psychedelic experience i don't know what that extent really is it's probably subjective to each person what makes them ready or what makes them feel that they are ready Um, but then there are other substances such as psilocybin lsd mdma where you don't necessarily need to put put both feet in the water you don't need to dive headfirst in you can take it slowly now that's not to say that you don't need to be ready but it's not going to be as intense if you are like let's just say microdosing Um, I've had plenty of experience of microdosing with psilocybin mushrooms, and uh, those experiences were usually pretty positive. Now, the overall outcome of those was never anything that I could conclude to be long-lasting, and that's more than likely because I was never in a therapeutic setting. It was more so just with myself, um, not doing anything more than experiencing day-to-day in those states. Now, if you were to combine that with, let's say, meditation or psychotherapy, things like that, the long-lasting effects that can take place, such as like in a shamanic ceremony, would be lifelong lasting to the point where it is a lesson learned and it is a lesson garnered, not just something that you know and don't know how to use. You know it and you know how to use it type of thing. Um, And with your experiences regarding psychedelics, did they ever tell you anything about your addiction um, that you maybe weren't ready to hear or maybe weren't ready to handle? Oh, I can definitely say that psychedelics, through my entire addiction, I was also doing psychedelics. It was like, I have my addiction, and I do that with my friends that, you know, do that with me. And then with my other friends, and also with my friends that were recovering, it was always psychedelics. Right. And we did that as our our way to have fun, our way to escape and to learn and to enjoy each other. And we had a lot of beautiful experiences, but I also had quite a few experiences of you know, the, the, the sky is falling. Right. Say. Right. Um, one experience I can remember quite vividly is the experience of taking a psychedelic on methamphetamines which i would not recommend (laughs) right wow and actually smoking methamphetamine while on said psychedelic which i would not recommend right and passing the pipe to my friend at the time and looking down at my hand and watching what felt like my skin peel off my hand and then my hand kind of wear down into bone. And then I felt each one of my teeth pop out of their sockets. And it lasted all of probably 30 seconds to a minute. But to this day is one of the most scary experiences I ever had because the pain of that experience was quite real right. for that minute. Mm. And I think addiction 
and psychedelics, I think they're naturally clash. I think psychedelics will always try to point the hand yep. to the addiction and right. go, you need to look at that. And there were, there were a lot of times I tried to deny that, and I tried to say, no, I don't want to look at that right now. I want to look <laughs> at the pretty lights. Right, right, right. <laughs> I want to look at anything else but how I'm feeling inside. Mm. But there comes a certain point, whether it be a certain dose or a certain mindset, where psychedelics will take you and they will say, look, no, you are going to focus on this for a time being, and everything in your body how I felt kind of shut down. Mm -hmm. I really felt it it was the first time that I felt like, wow, this really isn't right. It was what we call a aha moment in addiction. It's the one time the addict actually sits down and goes, oh, wait, this is kind of fucked up. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I mean... (laughs) Okay, so my experiences with psychedelics when I've had a negative experience, and I don't think that there's any such thing as a bad trip. I know that people can have negative feelings during a trip, but I think that overall when I've had a negative experience while on psychedelics, it has been the most positive for me in terms of building myself up and then opening myself up to the changes that needed to take place because it shows you those aspects of yourself that you aren't ready to confront, but you need to confront because you're already in the water. There isn't getting out of the water until you're to the other side. You can't swim back. You, you just got to go forward. And <clears throat> I found myself fighting against that so often that uh, it, it really, just any time I would take psychedelics for quite some time, I would have a negative experiences because of my pretenses towards other people, my negative feelings towards uh, somebody's intentions, um, negative feelings of myself and self-worth, not feeling like I was good enough for another individual or not feeling like I was, um, I wasn't cool or I was uh, being too loud, just very self-conscious about these different things. And those would lead me into a negative spiral where I really needed to look at myself um, from a perspective of objectivity to try to make change but then when you're out of it it brings you to this point of realizing that you need to be forgiving of yourself and of others Um, and that forgiveness of the self is one of the main things that you can do for yourself to bring you to a point of understanding with all of that going on because as you know the teachings that you're brought to in a psychedelic experience are rarely if ever something that you can directly correlate to everyday human existence. These are profound and expansive ideas and experiences that don't hold any bounds within this 3D reality that we call home. It's like it opens up several other dimensions of experiences and energy that we don't experience so that we don't know how to put it into words. And then if we are putting it into words, we are usually readily um, known that it's all based on ego and that we're trying to express ourselves in a way where we seem intelligent or we uh, seem cool or, you know, we seem knowledgeable to these sorts of things. But when really in all actuality, that would just be the thing that we tried so hard to learn against is that working off of ego and, um, you know, not trying to make sense of everything just because we have minds to do so. Yes, I mean... Everything you just said, definitely. The ego is a huge part of what we both 
need to accept and what we both need to work against. Mm-hmm. I'm a firm believer that there is a such thing as a healthy ego. Yep. And there's the ego that both supports your self-confidence because I can be self-confident in the fact that I know a lot and on the other hand, I know jack shit about anything. <laughs> right. It's the ego that says, yes, where you are is good enough. There's not going to be a point in your life where you sit down and you go, I have done everything in the world. I'm the best at everything. <laughs> right. But there's points in your life where you can sit down and you can be proud of yourself. And you can say, I did this and I thought that was impossible and that is awesome. And I'm awesome for accomplishing that. Right. And it's finding that delicate balance in between. And like you said about... Uh, self-forgiveness self-forgiveness is a very hard concept almost I would say harder than forgiveness of other people right it's it's almost easier to go to someone that's wronged you in a major way and say hey look I forgive you even if you're not sorry I forgive you mm. because I don't want to hold on to this burden anymore right and that and that's more than fair but it's very hard especially if anyone else sits awake at night and thinks about all the stupid things you've ever done or the stupid things you've said to people. (laughs) God, you know, I really fucked that up. I could have done that better. Right. That's you, uh, you can admit that, but you got to also forgive that and you go, okay, well, I'm not a God. I'm, well, you're you're a god in your own way, but you're not perfect. No one ever will be. Right. You gotta forgive that. Absolutely. There's, there is beauty in the human experience of making mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to be human. Right. Um, to to touch on that a little bit, I've seen a lot of people on social media and also spoken with a lot of people recently where um, they will bring themselves to this point of feeling like they're failures and that they have experienced a lot of failure. And I, I definitely am a firm believer that there is no such thing as failure if you are open and willing to accept that it was a learning experience for you. Because if you learn something from an experience, regardless of the outcome, regardless of your pretense or intentions, it's not a failure because learning is never a bad thing. Learning is always going to be positive, especially when learning about the self and when learning about how you interact with other individuals, um, things like that. Um, But at the same time, uh, I can also attest to the forgiveness of self being harder than the forgiveness of others because there are things that I've done to people. There are things that I've said to people that I heavily regret, that I wish I never did. Um, But at the same time, during that time period, that person may have also been wronging me or may have also been doing negative things uh, against my will. Um, But at the same time, coming to a place of forgiving them and saying, hey, look, I understand that we were in a different place. I know that what we both did was wrong, but it almost seems like forgiving myself for the things that I did to them is so much more difficult than forgiving them for the things that they had done to me, regardless of whether or not it's a projection of self or if it's a delusion, things like that. It's just very difficult in terms of uh, mentality to bring yourself to a point of realizing where you lay in that construct. Yeah, I think that you are definitely right in that that it can be so difficult to forgive the things that you have done to other people. To give an example of that in my own life, through my addiction, I lost 
my best friend. Mm. Not lost as in he's dead, because he is very much alive and he lives no more than an hour away from me. But I lost him in the fact that we don't, we very rarely speak anymore. And this mm. is someone that since high school has been tied to me. Right. All the time, every single day. And to our falling out was the result of addiction. He was an addict and I was an addict. Mm. And actually, I was an addict trying to recover. And he was not. Mm. And that was our source of discrepancy. And to which case, I've said very nasty things to him. And I basically told him, leave me and never come see me again because you won't seek help and I'm trying to help you. Right. And it's something I would have never wanted to say to my best friend. It's something I never would have wanted to do to my best friend. In the same respect, was my reaction justified at the time? It might have been. Am I a terrible person for having said that? I can say no now, but for many years after the fact, that was the thing I stayed at night and thought about was how badly did you do that to someone that you love more than anyone else in the world right and you tossed him to the side Mm. and that was a very hard thing to come to grips with and to forgive and even today i'm still slowly trying to work to rebuild that relationship absolutely i'm in a similar situation as you in that sort of aspect where it wasn't addiction that brought me to that point but it was drug use and it was the use of drugs Um, mine specifically being psychedelics and cannabis where i thought that i was completely in the right with my use of them i thought that there was nothing wrong with my behavior my activities my choices in life but at the same time it left me reeling because that person had severe negative reactions to those experiences where i found solace that made them resent me and made me resent them um, to the point where it was just impossible for us to coincide Um, several negative experiences regarding psychedelics where you know I was with this person and they had a negative experience with it to the point where they literally collapsed to the floor from a hyperglycemic attack I didn't know this because we were both peaking on mushrooms we both had taken over an eighth we were both peaking and This person fell to the floor, collapsed. I thought they were dying, holding them in my arms, screaming their name while I'm peeking on psychedelics, thinking that this person was dead and or dying. Um, And then it just turns out that it was nothing. It was a hyperglycemic attack. Well, that, that sort of experience and how real it can become because of the way that your mind and your brain is altered from the use of those chemicals can make the experience, regardless of how, you know, faulty it was, the most real and visceral experience that you will more than likely experience ever in your life. Um, And I'm sure that you've experienced something similar, if not the same exact thing, regarding uh, your use with methamphetamines. Oh, definitely. When when you introduce psychedelics to the brain, experiences like that can both be extremely traumatizing and shaking, and they can feel so, so very real. If I... um, if I think back to both history with psychedelics and then a history with methamphetamines, you get this sort of thought process in your head and you will believe it with all of your heart and soul to be real. Now, whether or not that actually happened, totally debatable because you need someone that's more sober to 
reiterate to you what happened. Right. But with methamphetamines, at least, I methamphetamines, you have loads of psychedelic properties there. Right. But I almost call them the darker side of psychedelic mm. because I have yet to see a methamphetamine psychosis that was productive or helpful. Mm. Most methamphetamine psychosis will deal with something that's dark that doesn't very much relate to you and is always in the negative. Mm -hmm. One example for that would be the extreme prevalence of shadow people. Right. Everyone that either uses Adderall, methamphetamine, or in rarer cases is an extreme binger of cocaine will report the existence of shadow people. Whether or not shadow people actually exist, somebody other than I could debate all day. Right. To me, when I was using, I didn't really care if they exist or not. They were there and I ignored them. Right. Other people, it's not so easy. Other people have extreme <clears throat> psychosis. They feel that people are watching them. They're in the windows right now. And actually, I have a good friend of mine that I haven't talked to in a couple of years that is in that kind of psychosis where he really, truly believes, and he has believed for a couple of years now, that A, people are watching him. He believes that he can time travel through graveyards. Mm. And a lot of other things that to <clears throat> anyone sober from the outside seem bizarre, absurd, and impossible. Right. But in that psychiatric moment, and if you perpetuate it, in his case, by continuing to use drugs, and it just continues on and on, it's not something you believe. It's not a belief like, oh, I believe that we should do this. It's a fact. The reality, people. right? It's their reality, and you almost mm. have to respect that because at that point, there's nothing you can say that's going to discredit their belief. At that point, you have to accept the reality and work with them from the point they're at. Right at that point, right? Exactly. Um, all that all that needs to take place in order for something to be real is for somebody to experience it, and for that for that sake, it comes down to everything that takes place with uh, the use of, of substances and the psychosis that take place. Now, do you, do you know if um, there can be long lasting effects with that psychosis even after the person stops using it if they're using for such a long time? Oh, I mean, definitely the the unfortunate result is that in a lot of cases if you didn't have a mental disorder going into an extreme drug addiction that results in that kind of psychosis there is a large chance you're going to walk out of it with one right and that's a very sad fact there mm. are people that never had anxiety or depression in their life that are now having to grapple with these mental illnesses that when they started, they never felt like they had. And during using, they could always discount it to drugs. Now they have to actually deal with the fact that I have a social anxiety or I have major depressive disorder. I have a, I have a bipolar disorder. Right. And that's when the kind of dual diagnosis in counseling begins, which is honestly the most helpful form of counseling is dual diagnosis 
because you have to take the subject's mental health into consideration when trying to treat them. If they've only had a mild experience with drugs, maybe a year or so, and there weren't too many traumatizing experiences in there, most conventional methods will probably work. But the longer it's gone on, the more traumatizing experiences that have occurred, and the larger they have bite into whatever psychiatric break they had, the harder it's going to be to readjust them to a sober reality. Right. Uh, it almost sounds like schizophrenia um, or uh, borderline personality disorder in some sort of senses, like where you hear about people taking uh, psychedelic one time and they were predisposed to either become schizophrenic or they were already on the brink of it without knowing it, where it literally just sets it off in their brain um, where it's nearly, if not fully irreversible to the point where they can't really um, do anything. It, it's literally debilitating to the point where they need uh, psychiatric counseling in order to overcome these things, if not just help with treating those things. And in that sort of regard, it, it's, it's very scary. Um, I've several times in my life, as I'm sure you have, um, convinced myself that I was either schizophrenic or had schizotypal personality disorder or was psychotic, um, having manic depressive episodes, um, feeling thoughts, uh, thinking thoughts and feeling feelings where I was nearly homicidal or suicidal. And those things are, are very scary and very real for the people experiencing them. Um, uh, it's just, I don't know, do, do you still experience the negative aspects of the psychosis from your use with methamphetamine? I, that's a, it's a very difficult question. In my day-to-day -day life, I would say no. Mm -hmm. Actually, in my day-to-day -day life, I would say yes. There are a few things, they're not mental, but they're physical aspects okay. that are permanently resigned for that. One of those is that my teeth are fake. Okay. I have all fake teeth. Okay. Because of a physical aspect of the use of methamphetamine paired with the use of psychedelics, psychedelics normally cause you to clench your jaw. Methamphetamine rots your teeth. My teeth literally crushed into dust. Wow. So that is a physical aspect I live with every day. The other physical aspect I live with as a result of that is my hands are always shaky okay. to a certain extent. Not <clears throat> not um, cerebral palsy shaky, but more so if I have a cold draft, you'll notice me shivering before you see anybody else shivering. Right. Because my body is predisposed to that hypersensitive movement. However, I count myself very fortunate for that. Those are the only two symptoms I feel I carry into everyday life. And to the most part, I don't notice them anymore because I took steps to correct them. The shakiness went away with time. Teeth can be replaced by dental surgery. Right. That's, uh, that's intense. And I'm so thankful that you have come to grips with that. 
um, and are able to cope with it in your own sort of way and uh, bring yourself to the recognition of those symptoms because that is a very scary thing that uh, I know that most people already know that the rotting of teeth is a symptom of the use of smoking methamphetamine, um, but not a lot of people take into account because of their lack of experience with psychedelics the jaw clenching um, that takes place. Now, I myself normally will chew on gum, um, but in your case, if the teeth were rotting already, I don't necessarily know that that would have been mitigated. Um, so it's yeah. The issue the issue with that is by the time by the time that was really an option, I couldn't chew gum already because my <sighs> teeth hurt so badly that the chewing of gum that would get into the cracks of the teeth and cause pain. Right. So of course I didn't chew gum on psychedelics because the last thing you ever want to feel on psychedelics is a large amount of pain. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so it was, I mean, I'm not saying it was a singular process, but over the years of doing that, you, I would crack a tooth here, I'd crack a tooth there, to the point where when I finally went to the dentist, the dentist looked at me and went, I can't save anything. Oh my gosh. Wow. Uh, I'm I'm just like reeling right now from your explanation of that. Like I, I definitely have heard it from other people and their experiences, um, but just to know that you went through that personally, um, I I am trying my best to feel the highest amount of empathy for you because uh, recognizing that it was an addiction thing and it wasn't something that you were readily making a choice on is is very scary. Like you feel like you know the things that are going on with you that are negative and yet it's still something that you push to the side because of the other thing that you're wanting, the, the end goal, the positive drive, which is the use of the methamphetamine. Um, Definitely. And the... And the thing that really sucks especially with that aspect or with any medical aspect like that is the use of methamphetamine not only trumps that it will prevent you from going and seeking help because how do you use methamphetamine and walk into a dentist and have them look at your mouth and them go what is going on right to say well i use methamphetamines they you're gonna fear their judgment right even if it's the best dentist in the world they're like we'll help you you're not you almost won't go there because of that stigma. Absolutely. You fear that judgment. Right. Man. Now, speaking more on the fear of the stigma and the fear of the judgment, on a day-to-day, what are your overall feelings when somebody um, tells you that addiction is a choice? Oh, that is a very hard topic with me. Absolutely. I will fight against that mm-hmm. all day. If you come to me and say using drugs is a choice, I will say you're totally correct. Definitely. Because you choose to use drugs. Mm-hmm. The very first time that you sit down and those drugs are in front of you, whether or not you want to account it to peer pressure or anything else, you did make that choice. At a cer- And you continue to make that choice. I'd say... For a lot of people, the first six months of your drug addiction, I will say it was a choice. The issue is what I mentioned earlier, is you don't know, you will never know, because everyone's different, when it no longer becomes your choice. And as soon as you realize it's not your choice, things get very, very scary. Mm -hmm. Because at at one day you wake up and there's none to use, 
And that's when that voice comes out of the back of your brain and goes, well, you need to go get some right now. And you're like, I got responsibilities, I got this. And it says, no, you're going to go. You're going to go right now. Right. This is all I'm going to let you think about now. And that's when you lose that choice. Addiction's not a choice. No one grows up and says, I want to be the drug addict. Right. No. No. But you might say you want to use drugs, but that also goes back to the the societal thing. If you could go into a healthy environment and use drugs... If you could readily get drugs that were of a quality and not cut or laced, drug use and drug experimentation might rise, but drug addiction would drop significantly. Right. That's uh, I I definitely agree with you on that one. Um, I've never. And I was just bringing up that point because I've heard other people say it, and I've seen you post about it in the past. and other addicts also post about it where, you know, there's a large stigma where people for some reason think that it's a choice being made that these people are going to continue to use drugs. But as you've explained and as you've experienced, it's much more beyond the choice and the active participation. Rather, you're being hijacked most literally by a, a certain portion of your brain, if all the brain, um, to, to do those things. Um, now, a, a question that I have that is my own personal one and not so, so much something that I've heard other people talk about um, is the definition of an addict itself. Do you feel that or do you, do you uh, believe that to this day, regardless of their current status with the use of, of the drug that they were addicted to, is somebody always an addict once they've been an addict? I believe that yes, they are, but not with the stigma attached to that. Okay. You're not an addict as in the stigma attached that you would sell your family and you would do this. I mean, you're an addict as in the fact that if you take someone 10 years out of recovery for a major drug like cocaine or meth and you take an eight ball out of your pocket unexpectedly and you throw it on the table and you say, do you want to do something with me right now? It will take all of the strength in the world for that person to go no and walk away. Right. And I'm not saying that's impossible because it's totally possible and some people have to do that in their everyday lives. But the fact that it takes you so much strength to say no shows that those addictive ties are still in there they're deep and you might be stronger than them now but they're still in there but and it makes either either you're still an addict you can say it that way or you are a survivor the Mm. same as someone is a survivor of extreme childhood abuse right or they're a survivor of extreme sexual abuse you might be better now you might be able to live your life happily and comfortably now and you might be able to turn those things away now but the brain doesn't totally forget that part of that is always with you it's part of your story it's not something to be ashamed about it's not something to hate yourself for but it's part of your story and it's how you became you that you are today absolutely that uh that definitely makes sense for me um and it's it's always just uh something that i sort of you know recant with myself um 
with my own personal experiences with addiction to alcohol, and then also my own personal experiences to father figures in my past having an addiction to alcohol, where I had this major amount of negative bias towards a stepfather because of his addiction to alcohol and because of the actions that he would take while he was intoxicated that led me to believe that addiction, is, that alcoholism isn't a disease. And I'm not speaking for myself now, but in the past, I would say to myself that alcoholism is not a disease. Um, it is it is a choice that he's making. He's doing these things actively to hurt me and to hurt my family. And there's nobody in the world that can change my perception on that because I've seen it. I've experienced it firsthand. Now, looking back on it this day, I realize and recognize that there was a lot of subjectivity brought into that, um, being that I was very young. Um, ages 14, you know, and, and a little bit younger than that, maybe 12 to 14, and then later beyond. Um, and to that point, it, uh, it drives home this feeling of negativity towards that person and a lot of inability to forgive that person, um, which really sucks. But at the same time, I think that it can't necessarily be expected of young children um, and children in their adolescence to forgive so readily when they don't really understand the mode and operation that is the forgiveness that needs to take place in order to overcome those situations. Now, I'm not trying to justify my negative feelings towards this person, uh, but at the same time, there is this you know, major overlying mental thing going on um, with experiences of trauma and stuff that ha leads you to have biases and to have certain perceptions of, of consumption of different substances. And that led me to a point where I told myself over and over and over again, I will not use alcohol, I will not get drunk, I, I will not become an addict. And then <laughs> thinking about that so often and so pervasively, it brought me to a point where I found myself in the exact position that I was trying to avoid for my entire life. And you just sort of look back on it and even in that moment questioning, how the fuck did I get here? How did I get to this point? How was I not steadfast and using foresight to be able to snuff out this cause and this effect in order to mitigate a possible negative situation? And that's just a, a really hard aspect of being a human being and experiencing substances in, in the way that they alter our consciousness. Um, and it, it's very scary, but at the same time, as you are an example to hold, uh, it is possible to overcome those things. And unfortunately, in my experience, uh, the only way that I overcame those negative feelings towards that person, and it's a really shitty thing, um, I, I judge myself for it most days, so uh, I understand if anybody else has judgment towards me as well. The only thing that brought me out of those negative feelings towards this person were the inevitable suicide of that person, that person no longer existing, and I, it didn't happen long ago, it didn't happen very long ago at all. Um, but I, I, I feel so badly with myself for not coming to a point of understanding, at least with them. You know, it's like we were saying, it's harder to forgive the self, but it, it, I feel like I could have at least come to a point of acceptance with that person. But the abuse and the uh, side effects of that person's alcoholism were pervasive and ongoing till the day that they committed suicide. And that's why I think it's so hard for me to to stop uh, obsessing 
on the instances that I was put in and the different outcomes that they had for myself. Is there anybody in your life uh, other than that friend that you were talking about where um, you have long-lasting traumas because of that person's uh, experiences and uses of different substances that could potentially have led to your inevitable use of the substance? Oh, I mean, most certainly. I can definitely relate to what you're saying. Um, to what you're saying, when a parental figure is using illicit substances or in the case of alcohol, not illicit substances, but they're abusing them, and in which case they're rippling that sickness and that abuse through the family dynamic, especially when kids are young, when they're developing, when they're eight, even when they're at adolescent age, you cannot expect that those kids to forgive them. In my case, my father was a raging meth dealer, alcoholic. He did everything under the sun, and he was very abusive to me, my sisters, and my mother, my whole family. It was extremely difficult in my upbringing until he died when I was 14. And it took me, A, a long time to forgive myself for how okay I was with the fact that he had died. And in addition to that, it took up until my adult life more recently to come to terms with the fact that I could forgive him long since he's been dead. And the reason for that is exactly what you led into, is that you spent, you know, so much time, I'm not going to be that person, I'm not going to be that person. And I, too, spent so much time of my young life saying, I'm not that person, I'm not like him, I won't be like him, I won't do the dumb things that he did. And to have that moment where you look in the mirror, and you can't even really distinguish the person anymore, and you're like, fuck, how did I... How did I get to this position? How did I get here? And the thing I realized and the thing that I've come to grips with is, A, I wasn't as strong as I thought I was. Right. Because I, I think that none of us are really as strong as we might feel that we are. We are very strong, but it might not be in the same indestructible optimism that we have in our youth. Right. And the other part of that is knowing that even though yes that parental figure did that and yes it's inexcusable and it shouldn't be done also admitting the fact that that person too is human that they might have been battling something that we don't understand or fully know about right and that they might not have had the tools needed to ever pull themselves out of that that's the that's the mantra I have with my father that essentially I look at my life now and me and my father are not that different of people. Right. However, we had different tools, we had different skill sets, and the great boon that I had was watching him crash and burn. Mm. It gave me a deep understanding from a young age what happens when you keep trying to play with fire when you keep telling yourself and everyone around you're indestructible when you keep pushing for this thing this happiness that you'll never reach through drugs and alcohol it just hurts yourself greatly but also everyone around you gets to experience the ripple effects of that self-destruction right 
So I think that all in all, what I've come to understand through my use of psychedelics and um, intermediate meditation and introspection and things like that is coming to a realization point that instead of telling yourself that I'm not going to be this thing, I'm not going to do this thing, I'm not going to act in this way, instead of using the negative aspect of that of saying I am not, instead mitigate that thought, that energy process and switch it around to a point where you're saying I am going to and then interject with a positive. So instead of saying I'm not going to become an alcoholic, I'm not going to be an abusive father, I'm not going to hurt the people around me, instead say to the self, I am going to love everyone wholeheartedly. I am going to practice self-responsibility and uh, you know responsible use of things. I am going to be a loving father. I am going to do this, this, and that. Um, I meditated on it, not extensively, but to a point where I've come to an understanding with it. And do do you think, or is that something that you use as a tool or would try to get other people to use as a tool when in combating these things? Most certainly. I mean, whether you want to call it uh, mindfulness, uh, positive intention, the power of yes, the secret, it goes by so many different names. But the root goal is, even if there's negatives in your life and there's things where you don't want to be, it's not healthy to focus on the don'ts. It's not healthy ever to focus on the negative. You focus on the good. Today, I'm going to be a good father. Today, I'm going to do this with my family. And you focus on that in the day in and day out. And you can become that because you're setting reachable goals. To not become something is almost to a certain extent without out of outside of your control. You can, you know, dig your heels in as much as you want, but if something was destined for you, you're gonna become that whether you like it or not. What you can set is what you are going to do, and what you are going to do will and thus reflect what you become and maybe you don't become the thing you always said I'm not going to be that but you become that through the positive intention of doing the things that make you not that and that's positive intention is one of the most powerful aspects of psychology because the brain is truly a powerful tool and a gateway to the universe and if we harness that power of positive attention and that power of positivity in our day-to-day lives it makes everything better if you look at a bad day in a positive light and you do that consistently your quality of life is going to drastically improve because you're looking at positives in the light. You're not looking for every negative. If you look for a negative in everything, you're always going to find it. Absolutely. I, I love the way that you put that. That's absolutely beautiful and something that I think needs to be more readily taught um, in overall school structure, family structure, and things like that, something that we ignore. When it comes to the negatives in society, I feel like we tend to ignore them or put them in a point of stigma to where we say, I'm not going to. Um, But I think that if we drive home and try to normalize that positive intention setting, which for me 
as I'm sure with you, has been one of the biggest personal goals and uh, personal drives on a day-to-day is trying to do positive rather than to focus on not doing negative. Now, I'm sure that you slip up with your own personal intentions. I know I slip up, everybody's human, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily matter as much what happens in terms of you know the negative if you had set into motion a positive intention because your intentions are everything um, and I don't think enough people take that into account because of their um, you know preconceptions of different groups of people or a, a different topic or an activity and things like that and that's fine that's human but if we can try to normalize it and bring it to a greater point of understanding, I think we can definitely overcome things much easier, much more readily, and with open arms of acceptance and forgiveness. Um, Now, speaking on psychedelics once more, I would love to know, and I know I talked about how if we talk about the psychedelic experience and we try to put it into human words, then we're just utilizing our ego um, to try to make us seem a certain way. But obviously you are a very mindful individual, very thought out. And I, I would love to know what is something, if not the something, that you have learned through use of psychedelics um, that has been prevalent in your everyday life, something that you learned and you utilize that you know for a fact is a universal truth that you can carry forth into this life and then beyond? Wow, that is a really, really good question. (laughs) So if I think about that, I feel like there's so many things Mm. that I have learned through psychedelics, but I think the biggest thing that I've learned and it's something I absolutely struggle with doing. And I think all of us struggle with it. Anyone that actually tries to struggle with it is the thought and the experience that we are all one and the same. Mm. We are all interconnected in this giant web of events that we call life. And even the person that hurts you you even the person that has traumatized you or mentally scarred you to be able to look at that person and see aspects of yourself within the human experience and see in a way a reflection of a different life story a different set of genetics and a different set of events being able to accept that that could be me under the right circumstances with the right genetics that person would have been exactly like me and that person could have been me too we're a product of so many different things our social life our you know romantic life our physical attributes attributed from our parents our societal values and that all comes together to form this human being but we're not so different from our darkest monsters, if you will. We're all kind of connected. And even though some some people are downright nasty, some people will hurt others with no readable reason, and those are not good people. However, you can understand them, and you can understand the point that they're coming from. And the biggest thing out of all of that is to, to choose love. Love is a universal among all of us. If we choose love, 
we build connectedness. If we don't choose love, we build separation. And we're not built for separation. No. As much as the internet has connected us and also separated us, it's done so in almost an unhealthy way because we are a tribal human connection kind of people. We, our brains get off on connecting with one another and about talking with one another. One of the great reasons I decided to do this podcast with you. Yeah. The ability to connect with other people mm. is an essentially valuable human experience to share thoughts, ideas, and feelings, and it ties to every aspect of our life. And if we can even put that on someone that we don't necessarily like, someone that we don't agree with and we for the most part don't care about because our lives we're very selfish creatures usually and our lives are revolved around us and around what's personal to us and we can make that branch to reach out and connect with that individual you might establish the only meaningful connection that individual has and through that kindness that you show to someone showing you this kindness you almost infect them and you almost give them the chance to spread that kindness throughout their lives because you showed that even if they're not showing it to you. Absolutely beautiful. I appreciate you putting it into words because it's obviously a very prevalent feeling that I'm sure anybody who's ever done a psychedelic or had a psychedelic experience on something, let's just say as cannabis, um, you come to the terms of realization with yourself and for others that changing another individual actively is absolutely impossible unless they are open and willing to that change. And so the most effective and active form of being able to change another individual is changing the self. When you change yourself, you make those active um, you know, modulations to the way that you speak to somebody, to the way that you think about ideas, to the to the things that you literally talk about, the type of media that you consume, um, the activities that you participate in, the substances that you use, i.e. or don't use, um, those things, if projected in a way that is positive enough, people around you will attract to that. They will notice it and they will see the things that you're doing and want that for themselves. Some people may not be ready for it and they may take on a side of um, jealousy when it comes to your overall poppinness. You are up and you're happy and you're positive and you're affecting change in your day-to-day -day life and you're affecting change in other people's lives by showing them the light and the love and they may become jealous of that but at the same time they may realize and recognize that all of your intentions are positive and you're not having any ill will towards them and that it's a it's it's strictly a projection of themselves um, and that they are just uh, in need of enacting a similar if not the same change for themselves in order to garner those experiences and to have an overall positive outcome um, so I, I am so thankful that, you know, we've gotten to this point. Um, I know that, you know, we obviously haven't talked much, if at all, in the past seven years. But to be able to have a, a full conversation about one another's feelings on a situation regarding chemicals and regarding consciousness and stuff, just to know and to show people that regardless of our differences, we are much more similar than we would like to think. 
And it's, it's definitely been a prevalent topic in my past episodes. I think that when it comes down to it, accepting people for who they are, recognizing them as a tree, like in the forest, you don't question why the trees are the way that they are. You accept them for the way that they are, and you don't try to change them. But then there are also things when you walk through the forest, such as mycelium, and you could take the mycelium as a person who is open to positive change. You walk through the forest, and the mycelium will literally gravitate to you because of some inert, unknown thing, and that is that positive love and light and or the energy that you are exuding. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, I am so thankful to be able to have been able to speak with you today because uh, I would like to apologize to you for the negative things that I have done to you in the past. Um, I know that I have treated you wrongly. I have said negative and hurtful, hateful things to you. And uh, I, I know that they all came from a place of ill will and misunderstanding for myself towards you because of my projections of who I thought I was and who I wanted to be. And for that, I am greatly sorry. Well, I thank you so much for your apology. It wasn't needed, but I appreciate it. <laughs> I, I too, um, I am sorry that our bond was severed and that we have not spoken these past seven years so that I haven't been with you on the journey we've taken because I'm sure it has been an incredible one <laughs> at the time being so wrapped up in in the ego right. and in what I think is right I spent such a large portion of my life shutting out the ideas and the opinions of others only to realize that I knew so very little about the world right. and it is feels great to me and it relieves me so much to sit here and talk with you today and build this kind of connection even when we're what about 850 miles away something like that yep <laughs> trying, trying to think of the last trip i made down there right where you're at yep. so oh. even from such a great distance the ability to speak with you on such topics and especially topics that are of such great passion to me because really i have set forth of these past seven years and went to gather as many of these experiences together because I believe it to be the source of you don't get great knowledge from lack of experience right. the textbook does not teach you the same way that life teaches you Exactly. and in what, in what you were saying about the mycelium in the forest and how it gravitates, gravitates to you, I believe that's almost all of life what whatever you call it if you want to call it god as i do or if you want to call it allah or you want to call it the universe or whatever force you want to call it there's an active force even in my more recent science classes i'm taking we talk about this active force that lives within the universe that we cannot detect we do not understand but it seems to almost choreograph this intergalactic dance across the cosmos that we perform and it seems that things will gravitate to you in a positive sense the more positivity you put out into the world whereas the more negativity you do the more negative your life will become and it's important for us to reckon 
like recognize this because to a lot of people yeah that's superstitious mumbo jumbo <laughs> right. and that totally makes sense but even in the courses i'm taking now studying astronomy and studying the stars and studying how life works it's more than just mumbo jumbo the mumbo jumbo part you could consider whatever we call it because we don't understand it in in the least sense we do not understand any of it because that is the act of life but we do understand that life has a certain way of gravitating things back and forth. That's why mindfulness is becoming much more popular. That's why meditation is becoming much more popular because we're starting to see the effects that if you take the time to put positive attention, put kindness into the world, you are going to receive that back in tenfold. Absolutely. I don't think enough people can really come to it at this point a realization of self-awareness and that mindfulness that needs to take place because of the hooey hooey sort of connotation that stigma that's centered around that but uh the more popular it becomes i definitely think the more readily accepted it will become by the overall populace um i've i've heard a couple people in my more recent past who really had a major positive effect on me because of their overall positivity, their expression of the light and the love. Um, one man that I had met who really showed me that you can be whoever you are, and uh, as long as you're true to that, um, you will always have positive outcome, is uh, it was a man in Arizona, and... Um, Man, I can't even remember exactly what he was saying. Fuck. Damn. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it was just so profound to me um, that it really made me recognize and reel on the change. Um, oh, I, okay. I remember it now. My apologies there. He had said to me that uh, all of the experiences garnered when it comes to mindfulness and uh, positivity and self-awareness it is leading us down a path of evolution where these generations that we are currently existing in now are going to be looked back on hundreds and thousands of years from now we are going to be the ancients the ones who brought back the connection to the universe and the connection of self and to others um, to a point where you know we, we are literally setting in motion change and causes for the rest of human civilization regardless of whether or not we're actively participating in it that is that is very powerful right my god and you know i i resonate with that that is i feel that to be very true because if you really think of it even more radical um if you look at the political spectrum of it typically the left is more progressive and the right is more conservative. But when you focus on that, even the radical left, you compare them back to 200 years ago of more native, actually, you probably have to get three, 400 years ago now, right? but more native tribes and the original Americas and how Indians and other peoples experience life it was a more free thinking kind of society absolutely it was a more loving sharing kind of society and in reality we are kind of like the ancients i i say that in the utmost respect to 
actual indigenous people and the people that actually continue to have the spiritual practices of the days before but the newer generations that are coming out will be referred to as somewhat as the people that brought the ancients back even if we just look in the perspective of the united states and the shift that is going to eventually come in our country the generations are changing the values are changing we are evolving as a culture as a people and i hope that this time we're involving in a in the right direction of uh, the right direction being in my personal opinion a, a strive for more simplicity a strive to get back to the community connection i don't know about you but if i asked you when's the last time you went next door and like hung out with your neighbors you'd probably tell me almost never right we would say that we almost always never go out and reach out for that kind of connection but if you look at it humans are meant to be in a community section yep we're meant to bring in our own tribe we there's loads of talk over there that you know choose your tribe choose your people and normally it's a mixture of friends family and that's really what a tribe was meant to be but we were meant to expand that outside of just our friend group I mean, you can bring strangers into your tribe and you can love them and you can also disagree with them and still hold them with respect. Mm. And that's what's made some of the great, some of the old greater societies so great is that they value the free thinking opinions and they valued also the conflict. You do not grow when you do not have challenge exactly a, a saying that goes do not surround yourself by people that always think the same way as you do because in reality they're probably lying to you and they're probably not trustworthy because they're just agreeing with you right they're probably not on your <clears throat> side they're probably just not wanting to challenge your thought because you reject that and the other saying that i have that i will unshamelessly quote myself for is something that I discovered on a mushroom trip one time and that is being happy and being what's the word comfortable is not the same complacency mm. and comfort are where all dreams die mm. Absolutely. Because if you are truly comfortable, it's okay to be comfortable, and you should not feel uncomfortable 100% of the time. If anything, you should feel comfortable at least 50% of the time. Right. But with that other 50%, you should be going out, trying new things, getting your thought processes challenged, and which is a totally uncomfortable experience. But it's good. That's the only way you grow. Absolutely. If you're, if you're not growing, you're not dreaming. And if you're not dreaming, you're waiting to die. Damn. Bro, you put that so well. Oh, yeah. No. Um, that's, that's like literally been one of my main points of this podcast is I've only so far that I'm aware of been able to have people who are more so on the left spectrum of politics and worldview. Um and so I, I try my best to present opposition without 
being the opposition <laughs> um, because I, I, I like to have my own perceptions tested, but at the same time, I try to be open-minded about those situations. And so with that, I would love to have somebody who uh, more so resonates with the right-hand spectrum of things regarding politics, socio-economic standpoints, and worldviews because I want to have excuse me, my own perceptions tested. That's like one of my main goals. And it's so hard um, because, and, and it really shows you who's more so in the right with certain things. It's not that I haven't asked people um, who are in opposition to me to speak with me. It's that I've been denied um, that they don't want to speak with me because they don't want to have their op their views tested. And that sucks, but at the same time, it's just a reality of everything. Um, like you said, it's uncomfortable, and I'm not gonna force anybody into a situation where they're going to be uncomfortable. Um, but I also want to put myself into the position of being uncomfortable. Um, so that's just, it, it's sort of a, a gridlock duality here sort of thing that I'm going through but at the same time I respect people's uh, positions with that and I, I don't want to force anything on anybody um, well with all of that in mind we are just over two hours here um, and I don't want to take up too much of your evening um, I, I know that you have a life obviously and there's probably people who are waiting to hang out with you and spend some time with you so um, I just want to say you know Again, I appreciate you so much for taking the time today to be able to come on here and to, to speak with me openly, honestly, and with a, a full heart to be able to explain to me your experiences and to sort of uh, digress deeper into these certain situations that I was unaware of and uh, potentially brought you to a greater light with yourself. Um, I know that speaking about things often um, and when it comes to past experiences can, can bring you to a, a sort of place of more comfortability with those things. And so I hope, if anything, um, you and I came to a greater understanding of each other and uh, a recognition of past faults and f future intentions of positivity. So, um, De Definitely. I want to thank you so much for having me on. It has been absolutely my utmost pleasure right on do this. <laughs> yes I love, I love talking psychology you know drugs addictions but even just talking about the realness of life right and the emotions of going through it i really think that is how we grow and how we learn as people is getting these different perspectives and melding them into what makes us us and i'm also also oh, grateful to have the time to talk to you. It's been way too long since the right. last time we talked, and I'm happy after all these years to be able to come to you and talk to you about this kind of realness and this depth and emotional feeling mm. that we've gone through tonight. And absolutely, if you ever want me to talk again, I am more than happy to come to another one of these. Absolutely. I, I will definitely be having you on again. You, you're such a wealth of knowledge. You're able to open yourself up freely without feelings of inhibitions, it seems. And I just absolutely adore and, and, and respect that and want to come more myself to a position of that. Um, I, for anybody listening here, it, it's taken us quite a while to get to this point to be able to talk. There have been setbacks and setbacks, and, and so it's just been, it's kind of interesting, um, but I knew that that build and that um, ambition and the, the want 
to speak with you just grew and grew. And and so us finally being able to get to this point has been absolutely fantastic. Hopefully in the future, um, you know, maybe when my I have a better phone, my phone is completely busted up so I can't do a video call. Um, but maybe in the future we can do a video call and that'll open up even more lanes of expression for you and I um, and being able to see each other's reactions to certain things rather than just hear them. Um, and that, that's my hope for everybody really in the future. So. Yes, definitely perfect. I look forward to all of that. That sounds absolutely incredible to me. And I'd like to thank anybody that's actually listening to this. And I hope that, you know, some of this back and forth that Gabriel and I have had has brought some new thoughts and some new emotions and some new feelings to for you to process through and to think about and to hopefully grow from. Absolutely. Right on. Well, um, after all of this time, I, I as well have the same hopes for everybody who's listening. I, I hope that you know you can find solace within the conversation, if not uh, just you know having having learned something new about me or having learned something new about Mr. Duran here. Um, so yeah, uh, overall, I would love for you to say one last thing as a general. Um, lesson that I think that, that that you think that you would love to drive home as today's message generally hmm. the, the one message if you take nothing out of this and the one message I'd love you to take home with you tonight is that we're connected love is powerful you are not alone and you can do this no matter what if you need help Hope's available, and there is no shame in that. Absolutely beautiful. <laughs> Two true words. Uh, I appreciate you so much, my brother. Um, and to anybody listening, I appreciate you as well. Um, this has been Diapod Logcast, the Dialogue Podcast, episode number nine with Michael Duran. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your evening. Peace. This has been Diapod Logcast, the dialogue podcast.